Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast, which we are all recording from our own personal bubbles. I am Kristen Roberts, head of news here at McClatchy, and I'm sitting in my house in Miami, which is not a terrible place to be. I am super happy to be back on the show with the one and only Alex Rorty, who is actually the king of the show, and also, by the way, a political correspondent. Welcome back, Alex. I actually insist that everyone address me as king when we do this show. So it's a little it's a little awkward, especially when the show ends and people go back to calling me Alex. But I deal with it. We're also joined by another political correspondent, David Cadenese, who has much to say about Biden world as well as Alex Rorty's hair. <laughs> I'm just Dave, honored to be welcome. here for your triumphant return, which has been months in the making. Hey, are you trying to call me out for not actually being on the show enough? No, I, I know I you have bigger things to deal with. I think your absence was exempted. That's very kind yeah. of you. You're very yeah. kind, you guys. All right. So on today's show, we are going to talk about what Alex wants to talk about. <laughs> and it is whether Trump is toast. And spoiler alert, he is not, <laughs> no matter what Alex and Dave say. And we will also dissect Biden's troubles with Latino voters. You guys ready to start? Ready, set, go. Let's do it. All right, let's go. I'm just going to open with a question. It is, is Trump toast? And I'm going to let you guys say ridiculous things, and then I'm going <laughs> to tell everybody why you're wrong. So let's start with you, Alex. This is why I wanted to talk about it, just, just to be clear, because I know that you would come in with a completely different thesis than what we have talked about on the show for like the last six weeks, which is, which is Trump's slipping poll numbers, his head-to-head matchups, which now show a greater than 10-point advantage in some national polls. State-based polling really isn't any better. And, and, and I think that the case against Trump and, and why he is an underdog in this election, of course, he can still win, but he is an underdog in, in my mind. I would explain it this way, that for the duration of his presidency, there have always been a critical mass of voters who don't like the tweets. They think that the White House is too chaotic. They maybe don't like Trump personally, as far as who, who he is personally. But they were willing to tolerate all of it because simply put, the economy was good, right? His actions didn't directly affect their life. So even if they didn't like the, the show that was going on in the White House, their life hadn't, you know, necessitated them turning against Trump in any way. And by the way, they don't really like Democrats either. So they were willing to put up with all of it. The reason that this is such a dangerous situation for Trump now is that that's ended. And the, the economy isn't good. The public is deeply pessimistic about Trump's response to the coronavirus. And again, for those voters who are willing to tolerate everything that Trump brings because because otherwise their lives were going okay, that's no longer the case. Everyone's life in America has been affected in some way by coronavirus. And I know that this has always been the holy grail for Democrats, right, that they would be able to draw a straight line from the chaos that people think. Trump creates in the White House to how it affects people's everyday life, their pocketbook. And, and they're able to do it at long last. They weren't able to do it with impeachment. It's why Trump's numbers, if anything, rose after impeachment. This is a fundamentally different problem. And I would just say quickly, I mean, not only did you have coronavirus, you actually had back to back national crises between the coronavirus and then the death of George Floyd. At a critical time, people start to really formulate their opinion about the election in that second fiscal quarter. There are academic models that when they, when they try to measure the economy's impact on 
on the election. They, they draw from the second quarters, that late spring, early summer. That's when people start to see the election. And in these back to back crises, the public overwhelmingly thinks Trump failed. Right. I mean, his his numbers are overwhelmingly negative in how he responded to both his response to the Black Lives Matter protests, in fact, have been worse than the numbers for his response to the coronavirus. And I think that one two punch is going to be very difficult for him uh, to recover from. Dave. <laughs> yeah. So I remember in 2016, I was actually asked on Fox News after the Access Hollywood tape broke. I was on a panel and everyone. Oh, God, I remember that weekend. And every, it was like the most insane 72 hours from like Friday to through the, you know, it was just nuts. But, but it was before the last debate. I was asked this question. Is he toast? Can he win? And I said, there's no way Trump could come back from this. I'm on tape. It has been played back to me. So I am <laughs> not going to be on this podcast saying anything close to Donald Trump is toast because Double down, Dave. Double down. I'm reminded of that clip. And, you know, history speaks for itself. I will say, just empirically by the data, right now, July 23rd, Joe Biden is a strong favorite to be the next president. Like, there is no other way to look at it, given given everything that Alex just laid out. But just looking at the data, the reams of data coming out of these states, and people are going to say, well, the polls were wrong. Hillary was never up by 10 points ever anywhere against Trump. I mean, the leads are much different. Now, we've got a lot of this campaign left to play. We've got 100 days left. We got a VP pick that Biden has to make that is going to be fascinating, I think, for a multitude of reasons, racial, demographic, ideological. We've got virtual conventions that have to be pulled off in August, which I, I, we still don't know. I mean, these things are weeks away and we don't know what like these conventions will look like, how different they will be. And then we've got debates and, you know, the debates are going to be huge. I think it could be record setting. And as Alex and I have talked about this week, we've got a different voting process. People have got to vote differently. They're going to vote early. They're going to vote by mail. They've got to learn their different laws in their state to figure out how to get their ballot counted. So we got a lot of game left to play. So I do think a lot can change and I'm not going to rule out a Trump comeback. I think we will all be writing about a story possibly around Labor Day that this race is tightening but if you asked me to bet, I, I would still bet that he's an underdog. I'm not asking okay, you to well, bet. Yeah, you know, no, I'm not asking I, I you to think bet. he's an underdog, and that's a fascinating thing for an incumbent president to be an underdog. It usually doesn't happen. Incumbents usually win. <sighs> I feel like a broken record on this, <laughs> but, man, I just don't know why. I don't know why the political reporting class continues to look at these polls as predictive or take guidance on their story selection or story assignments based on them because they are such crap. So really, I mean, I'm just going to say it again, and I'm gonna, I say it every single podcast. I say it every time we have a meeting. Don't talk to me about national polls, right? So we've got Biden plus eight. We have Biden state plus polls. 10. But state polls a, have Biden it, up by, like, I mean, there was a state poll that had him up by 13 okay. in Pennsylvania. That's an insane, so, that's, so I want that's you to, a state poll. I want you to listen to this, okay? Because here's a blast from the past. June 27th of 2016, Clinton plus seven. August 10th yeah. of 2016, Clinton plus seven. So uh, I don't, why must you all continue to do this to yourselves? I don't understand. But if we must, then yes. Let's talk about some numbers. Let's talk about numbers that are actually determinative. Just go and play around on Real Clear Politics, 
electoral map because it's so much fun. I really do encourage all the listeners to go to Real Clear Politics, click around, find the electoral map, and start moving some numbers. It's a fantastic exercise just for kicks, right? This morning, this very morning that we're recording this podcast, do you know how many states remain toss-ups? Anybody? 15. 15 for a total of more than 200 electoral college votes. Among these states, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina. And trust you me, Florida loves Trump. Right? So one of the biggest problems with one of the side effects of coronavirus locking all the reporters in their houses is that you guys aren't getting out and getting down to where the human beings are outside of D.C. or even outside of New York or whatever big cities everybody's living in, right? I drove across the state a couple of weekends ago to Naples, and I swear to you, every single yard had a Trump sign. Every one of them. You can see that when you get out of the cities. This is not new. It is the same phenomenon. Trump voters are baked. It's baked. But they're minority. And that doesn't mean he's going to win. It means the contest is going to be this narrow, this narrow. And the most important thing that happens between now and Election Day is stuff he can control. It's stuff he can control. It's not what the crappy says on Twitter. It's the economy. And it's whether there's another stimulus package. It's whether he can pressure states and cities and counties, maybe not cities, but counties and states to open up schools. It's stuff that he can control around the economic narrative. Because if the economy feels like it's recovering at a nice pace, if it feels like something is normalizing, then his chance of getting reelection pops. There are not 15 toss-up states. So real clear politics is wrong. They're just not. I mean, just look at where the campaigns are spending. Don't I mean, don't take me for it. Like literally the campaigns are spending in six to 10. So there's not 15. And the thing is like Trump's on defense everywhere. So like Florida, he can win Florida and lose the presidency. So like I wouldn't bet against him in Florida. All the Democrats have to do is win back Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And the fundamentals there are pretty bad. Arizona has now come online, a state that Democrats haven't carried since the Clinton era. There's real concern there that now you don't have to win Wisconsin. You can win Arizona and win the presidency. North Carolina is in play. Texas yesterday, Texas is is tied. Now, I don't think Biden's going to win Texas. That's actually crazy. But like, I know. Come on. If Texas is in play, like Republic- I love the Texas story. I mean, it's just you, wild. You managed to impress Kristen, which is a real break. I mean, yeah. I mean, I know she doesn't buy any of it, but because these are polls. But like, if we don't if we don't look at the polls, I'm like, what are we to go on? Are we to like totally as reporters? And I actually ask this genuinely. I don't think they're predictive. I'm just saying July 23rd. This is what I'm looking at. We come back August 23rd. This could be totally different. And I yeah. was like, let's look at reality. And four years ago, Dave, it was. Remember totally. that? Remember August of 2016? Yes. And, and what a turning point that was for his campaign. Yeah, I mean. Right? He, so much is going to happen think a lot in will the happen. next 100 days. I just think this is different because now he's an incumbent. And people have been able to kick the tires on this thing. In 2016, Trump was like an aspiration for people that they had in their heads. A guy, you know, he says what he thinks. He's a businessman. He's going to come and, and change the country. And, di- and now they've seen it. And they're like, oh, well, really? That's my feel of it. It's really not about, like, Biden. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's just that, like, this is all about Trump. And you could have put many of these Democrats that ran against him, I believe, 
and they would they would probably be in a driver's seat. Maybe not as much as Biden. But I think this is all I mean, about the Trump. smartest thing. You're right, because the smartest thing about a Democratic nomination of Biden is that Democrats allow it to remain all about Trump. Right. Other right. candidates it would would have been distracting totally in agree. that way. Sure. If we were on the verge of potentially electing an actual honest to God Democratic socialist. Elizabeth Warren. Um, the, or, or Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> right. Absolutely. The, the conversation would be different. I, I think it's a real debate whether or not they would have a, a similar lead or at least a lead on, on Trump. I'm inclined to think that they would. But it would be a, a, a different kind of race right. to this this point. I, I would make like two points to, to, to push back, Kristen, on, on you about why I think this is different than 2016 and, and one point about an advantage um, that, that Biden has. And I think people are even underrating. We're just quick on the, the, the polls. I mean, you mentioned the Access Hollywood tape and how everyone thought in the, the, the three days after that, that, OK, surely Trump is done. This is the end of his campaign. I know I certainly yep. I would just point out that. I remember very distinctly because that happened in early October. Within two weeks, two weeks, the polls had bounced back for Donald Trump. And there was ample evidence, even at that time, in, in terms of methodological questions about polls, that a lot of that was just Republicans who were ultimately always going to vote for Trump, but didn't want to answer the, the pollsters' questions, didn't want to answer the survey questions. I would say that the, the biggest difference now is, look, we're two months into this polling dip for Donald Trump. We are two full months and, and there it shows absolutely no signs of abating for the president. And even if anything, that his deficit continues to deepen as the, the country continues to, to grapple with this ongoing pandemic. If anything, it feels like his numbers are continuing to dip. I talked with a, a top Republican pollster yesterday, asked him point blank if he had seen any evidence, any evidence whatsoever that Trump was recovering. And he said flatly, no, he hasn't seen any evidence of that. I would also say, I mean, in, in the scheme of things of why we've always talked about before the pandemic began, why Trump was going to have an advantage in this race, it was his financial edge, right? He had built this quote unquote death star that he was going to be able to train on whoever the Democratic nominee is. And, and I think I've been a little bit of a broken record about this on the podcast, but Trump in, you know, that those months of April and May and June should have been maybe the best months of his campaign. The Democratic nominee emerges, is still trying to unify the party doesn't have the resources to to return fire, as it were, against Trump's campaign with this huge financial advantage. And instead of gaining ground, Trump lost ground. And what's the reality now? The reality is that the Democrats, Joe Biden, according to FEC reports, the totals only has $50 million less in cash on hand than right. Trump. As Dave knows, $50 million doesn't matter a whole no. lot in the presidential election. And I would say that Biden's fundraising pace is enormous right now because Democrats are just raising money hand over foot across the board, particularly among small dollar donors. And I and I feel like the Democratic outside group apparatus, if anything, has more money than the lone Trump super. Absolutely. I mean, I, I just feel like Trump's financial advantage has been completely squandered at this point. And and in, on top of all that, he's he's had to spend money in places like Ohio. The fact that Ohio on the map, as Dave pointed out, is is proof enough of the the, the difficult position that he finds himself in, if he has to spend money there instead of trying to spend it in North Carolina or trying to expand the map in a place like Minnesota or New Mexico, like we talked about, I think that's a, a story of huge consequence and a huge lost advantage for, for the president. I think there are a lot of things that can happen in the news cycle to Trump's advantage. And one of them is 
progress toward a vaccine, which we haven't talked yeah. about at all. I on agree this with show that. Yet, right. Sure. Right. Sure. So the president very recently this week, in fact, said something about we're going to end up with a cure. Right. We're very close with a vaccine. I sure hope I, so. Uh, yeah, we all hope I mean, so. let's <laughs> we all absolutely hope so. Most experts don't think we're going to get a vaccine by election day, but we actually don't need to get a vaccine by election day. All we need for for Trump to be able to leverage this into a political advantage is progress. And all we've seen is progress. The Pfizer news this week. We've got Moderna news. We've got a lot of good stuff, good for the world kind of stuff that he can leverage. You guys know this as well as our readers and our listeners do. It is about sentiment in the moment. It's about sentiment in the moment. And if there is positive sentiment around reopenings, around our kids getting back to school, around a vaccine being within reach, like I can see it sitting over there, it's almost my turn, right? And then suddenly the sentiment in America changes dramatically for the people who will decide this election. We're not talking about people over here who hate Trump or people over there who love Trump. We're talking about everybody in the middle who's like, ah. and there are those human beings. I know it's hard to believe that there that there's a set of human beings who don't have who, who could go one way or the other on this election. But there there is a set of those people in America. And it, it's it's not a small group. The flip side is if we enter the fall and this gets worse. I mean, we are already seeing a second spike in a lot of these states. We are going in the wrong direction in compared to how many European countries. I mean, our curve is like this and now we're going back up and it's a problem here in Washington, but it's also a problem in Florida and Texas and a lot of those big states. It's a problem in rural America because this is their first spike. And that piece of what you're saying, Dave, I think is incredibly important. What we're seeing in Kansas and in Missouri and in Kentucky. And older voters, like my parents who are afraid to like literally leave their house and go on vacation, older voters who are Republicans usually, I mean, they vote in large Republican numbers. And that's why I think the president has a real vulnerability. Like he needs to win their trust back because they're scared. They are scared about what I mean, people in their 60s and 70s, this could kill them. So I think it's a different calculation. And I'm worried just as a son of parents in their 70s about the fall and like when the regular flu comes and the weather gets colder, like, is this going to get worse again? And even if there is that promise of a vaccine in December or January, like I'm worried about the fall just like from a health perspective of like older Americans and how our health system can handle it with people with the regular flu. And is that coronavirus or is it the is it just the regular flu? And I just read this insane stat in the New York Times. 40% of the people that are infected have zero symptoms. So we have people walking around with it. They don't even know they've got it. And they're, I mean, that's why the, that is a real, real problem. I mean, now this has become a health podcast, but anyway, that... That's just a concern for me. And I think like the coronavirus is the X factor in this election, right? No matter which way it goes, hopefully it gets better no matter what for all of us. And I don't really care who that benefits politically, but I think it is the X factor in the election. I'm glad you said that. I would just add, I mean, for one, like to be clear, and I think Dave would agree with me 100% about this. I mean, we aren't trying to predict the election, but what we have to do, have a responsibility to do is accurately talk about what has happened over the last few months. And that- Look, Trump could win, but if he does win, it would have to come from a a major comeback that he would have to convince voters, a critical block of voters who have really soured on him in the last two months 
He has to try to win them back. And that's going to be, regardless of what happens, a critical and maybe the critical story of this election. I would also just say, as far as a gut level, why I think Trump is, is suffering here, independent of the polls or any real data, my Republican parents, who I don't think have voted for a Democratic presidential nominee in, in my lifetime, both of whom have expressed a lot of concern about how Trump has handled this. I'm not sure if they appreciate me saying that on, on the <laughs> podcast. I, would, I was kind my of mom, just wondering well, what was going to happen would, after this show airs. It's a classic trope for every political reporter that your parents and how they see things is is very determined <laughs> for how you see the current yeah. political culture. Kristen knows, I think Ron Fournier used to talk about that all the time back at our National Journal days. These are the moments where I wish we weren't on camera because I'm controlling my facial expressions <laughs> right now. You're controlling them very well. Actually. Thank you. I was Thank waiting you. for a reaction from you. And no. I very often think of my former bosses. <laughs> she said cryptically. <laughs> I was just thinking. That could I've go thought three many different times ways. Today, it, it can. I've thought three different times today about three different former bosses, and it's wow. only like eleven thirty in the wow. morning. So yeah, right. the day's barely begun. One more thing before we switch gears, okay? I want I want to get your thoughts, the two of you, on on Trump threatening to send federal forces into Democratic-run cities. My view on this is not surprised. Understand the politics there. A little confused about Lori Lightfoot's response, about Michelle Lujan Grisham's response. Um, Just thoughts. Does this have an impact? Is it as blatant a law and order reminder for Republican voters of some age, like perhaps your parents, that this guy is different from the other guy. How do you see this playing out over the course of the next 100 days? I think it's a base play and a cultural signal. I mean, it kind of reminds me of what the Bush campaign did to Dukakis. I mean, like Willie Horton. I mean, the, the latest Trump ad has a man coming into a house and literally threatening to kill grandma. I mean, it is jarring to watch. But it is trying to say, I think, and trying to tie Biden to this, I think is tougher. But it's trying to say that, look, the liberal Democratic cities are out of control. I'm here to protect you. If you don't have me, you're going to have violence. They're going to smash your windows. They're going to invade your home. They want to defund the police. It's a it's a very Nixonian, maybe even play to go that far. But I think it's a base signal. I think it works with his base. Is, does that add to the coalition? I'm skeptical because I think people view race relations very differently than they did in the 90s. I think our, our country has evolved. I mean, most people that are at Black Lives Matter protests are white. So, like, that's very different. I mean, Hillary Clinton wouldn't even say Black Lives Matter four years ago. Now Mitt Romney is saying Black Lives Matter. That's how far <laughs> we've moved on. So I think this fear mongering about this big cities and, and violence, it'll be it'll be good for his 43 percent. Does it get him to 48, 49? I'm skeptical. Yeah. Like Dave said, it's not 1968. It's not even 1988. And Trump isn't the challenger. Right. I mean, the, the fundamental problem for him is he's pointing to all of these problems while he is president. I made this point before, but look, there's a reason that when we talked about why Trump is suffering politically after the first 20 minutes of the show, we focused on coronavirus, right? I mean, we, that, that was what we were focused on. And my point has been, 
I don't think this cultural fight is is a great one to win over a lot of the voters who have defected from him over the last couple of months. But even if he were to win this fight on its own terms, I just don't know how much good it does him or if it does nearly enough good because the the ever present issue, by far the biggest issue is the the country's response to coronavirus. You know, he's in my mind, he is fighting the wrong fight. Yes. And, and so often, and there's been some commentary on this about Twitter, when I see the president's response, I mean, he he sounds as if he thinks the country is all listening to conservative talk radio. You know, the way he talks about the issues that he brings up. Yes, the, the, these are the issues that if you listen to Rush Limbaugh or, or anyone else that they are fixating on. But that is still a relatively small part of the country. And they're all voting for Trump anyway. Um, and it's just not the, the conversation that that most people are having. Health in the economy, health in the economy. That's what he should be talking about every yeah. day. Just talk about taxes. Right. I just had a Republican tell me that at the beginning of all this. He said, look, I think we'll be relatively okay. He was talking about in terms of like keeping the Senate or at least being competitive in the Senate. If he just focuses on a traditional campaign and talks about taxes, that's how we win back a lot of these voters. Right. And instead we're talking about Confederate statues yeah. and, and burning cities. It's, yeah. it's, frankly, it's, it's bizarre. The, the entire strategy has been bizarre. Our White House correspondent, Francesca Chambers, has written about this a lot, too. I mean, it is it is just a, a strategy that from the outside is hard to figure out. I want to shift. Let's shift our focus over to Joe Biden. Um, there is so much to say about Joe Biden, but let's really focus in on the surprising to some people weakness among Latino voters. Mm-hmm. Which is it's interesting to a lot of people. I you know I, I want to start off by saying it's I think it's incredibly reductive to continue to talk about Latino voters as a block. Sure. I, yeah. I, I think everybody needs to recognize that the experience of Hispanic Americans of Latino Americans differs across the country. Differs based on socioeconomic status, perhaps more than than their ethnic identity. Right there is that, but let let's open this up and talk a little bit about Joe Biden's weakness with Latino voters relative to what Hillary Clinton was able to accomplish with Latino voters, because that's where the delta is that I'm seeing there. Alex, what are your thoughts here? What, what is happening there and how how is Joe Biden's campaign thinking about this challenge? Well, and I, and I should say, Kristen, I mean, I will defer to you about how the sort of Cuban-American or the sort of Latino population that populates a place like South Florida, I'll defer to you how they see the election. So I'll specify what I'm talking about. I'm talking about essentially Mexican-American voters who, who populate Texas and Arizona and other key battleground states. And one data point about that, a Quinnipiac poll that, that Dave mentioned earlier that actually showed Biden up a point on Donald Trump. He was only at 53 percent support with Hispanics in Texas. I mean, that is a dramatically low figure for a Democratic presidential nominee. Generally speaking, you're looking at two thirds support. Hillary Clinton, even as she lost the election, did about two thirds support in the Latino community. And and as far as why this is, I mean, I think there are a lot of competing theories. I will tell you, having reported a lot on the Latino vote and polling the Latino vote, you will find a, a thicket of disagreeing opinions, people who say that the polling isn't right, people who say that, well, look, yes, Joe Biden's not doing well with Latinos now, or he isn't doing as well as we would hope, but there are three months left. This is an electorate that arrives late, that sometimes engages late, and we're going to spend, by the way, a lot of money trying to engage those voters. And that by election day, the numbers will be where they are, 
I would just say, you know, I had this conversation with the same Republican pollster yesterday, and I asked him what he was seeing in his his own numbers about Latinos, and and he hasn't seen anything particular yet. But he was pointing out that at least before the pandemic, there was a great deal of, of, of evidence that there was something happening with Latino men, and in, that they were open to Donald Trump. They saw a lot of opportunity in his economy, and that there was potentially an ability for Trump to win over a lot of those voters, not just convince them not to vote for Biden or stay home, but to actually win those voters over. And I can't be clear enough that this was Latino men and not Latino women, because Latino women, it was a completely different story in, in all of the data. And I wrote about this over the spring, that young Latino men, and depending on the pollster, you get a little different permutation. Some will say it's Latino men. Some will say it's young Latino men. Some will say it's rural Latino men. And we tend to overlook, speaking of not treating this group as a monolith, that a lot of Latinos live in rural America, you know, again, particularly in a place like Texas or, or New Mexico. And that there was a real there was a real problem for Democrats here, mostly because they actually they didn't mind Trump as much as we might think that they do just on a, on a personal level. And they like the economy. Now, obviously, all of that has been scrambled by the pandemic. And, and I think it's hard for anyone to get a hold of. But if again, it's not just that Quinnipiac poll, but if you look at national levels of support among Biden with Latinos. He is underperforming so far. So I had a little reporting on this during the primary, actually with Bernie Sanders campaign, who did engage Latinos very heavily. And sort of the notion was that for every thousand dollars they will spend on the swing suburban woman, they'll spend $15 on Hispanics. And they said that was across the board with Democratic campaigns and that really no one did it like Bernie Sanders did, where they went into the communities, where there were language barriers in Nevada, in particularly where it really worked for them, met them where they were at like local soccer leagues. I actually witnessed one of these in Iowa. They went to a, a soccer league, a Bernie Sanders campaign and organized when there was language barriers and they had translators there and they had signs in Spanish and they say, like, look, you've got to talk to these people and you have to talk to them early. And that that was the thing that that kept coming back to me. And they, and this was, you know, a Hispanic Democratic consultant that said, like, Democrats just don't do it. It's the last thing in their budget. Oh, yeah, we'll throw some money at the Hispanic vote in September. Too late. There's a registration barrier. They don't, you know, there's an education to how to get registered in the country, especially if you're new to the country. So I think there's a multitude of issues. And then I think like in the ideological sphere, Alex referenced this, but like a lot of Hispanics, I don't want to put them all in a bucket, but a lot of them are pro-life. A lot of them are anti-tax. So they're not as solid a democratic ideology. And you throw the socialism tag around and that scares a lot of them. You know, that's become like a, a big part of this campaign, right? Are the Democrats moving towards socialism? That scares a, a, a big. A I big, almost answered your question. Yeah. So <laughs> did you say my, my mic went like this? I mean, <laughs> so I think there's the education piece, which they're sort of the last sort of portion of everyone's budget, and then there's the ideological, and I think those are twin challenges for every Democratic campaign, particularly the Biden campaign right now. I think there's a great story in messaging. I think there's a fantastic story. Both get out the vote. I agree with you, and 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 talking with different voter groups in different states that are going to matter, um, in, in counties that are going to matter. But the interesting things that I've been reading in the last 
I don't know, eight weeks around this are really about which messages are resonating among Mexican-American voters about Biden versus messages about Trump. I think it was Vox, actually, that had a really, I think it was Matt Iglesias, had a really interesting story about which messages are working, specific Mm. pro-Biden messages being more effective than vague messages, anti-Trump messages having no impact one way or the other. And and the more I think that, that the Democrats kind of dig in on on that research and share it with us, please, because it's very fascinating and it tells us a lot about how this is unrolling. That's the kind of stuff that can be determinative, I think, with, you know, not again, not being reductive, but with specific groups of people in specific counties that are going to matter. We should point out, too, I mean, it's not actually just Latino voters that, that Biden is underperforming with so far. I mean, Harry Anton from CNN did an analysis of 10, I think, national polls, recent national polls, and found that Biden was underperforming among African-Americans, too. And it's some of the same story that particularly, at least before the pandemic, there was a concern that young African-American men were not just not interested in Biden, but maybe even open to supporting Trump. Now, I mean, we should qualify just with, as with the Latino vote, Biden is still winning these voters overwhelmingly. But what matters here is the margins, you know, and if he's able, if he's unable to match Hillary Clinton's margins, well, obviously, then he has to do better with white voters to win the election. And, and so far he has, but it's, it's, it's still important. And this is still just this enormous long-term challenge. This isn't just a one cycle issue, right? With, with, for Democrats to, to properly engage and, and politic the African-American and Latino communities in a way that I think even a lot of members of the party say they just haven't done all that successfully with possibly with the exception of Barack Obama. I would say just, that this is obviously a, a concern for Democrats. I don't know that the news is all great for Republicans about this because we're talking about how Joe Biden has this big national lead. And some of them will say that, yes, we understand that Biden is underperforming with African-Americans and Latinos right now. Our concern is, though, that's not going to last. And in theory, you know, we might think Joe Biden is at his ceiling of support right now, but actually he has room to grow. And some Republicans will, will stipulate that they think he will grow with these voters and that his lead he doesn't lose support among white voters, will actually increase. The same Republican pollster I was talking about, the Quinnipiac poll, and his first reaction was that it actually really worried him that Biden had a lead on Trump in Texas, even as he was at 53% support with the Latino community, because to him, it was a given that he was going to increase that at least into the low 60s by the time the election result. And there's really nothing Republicans could do to stop that. This, this is first and foremost a concern for Democrats, but I do think there is like a little... There should be a little anxiety here for the the GOP about this. I'm going to take the opposite position on this one. I think it's extremely important to remember that the groups of voters we're talking about in this segment of this show, in this moment, consistently tell researchers, academics, pollsters, and political reporters that the most important storyline to them, the most important issue to them is the economy. And should Congress pass another stimulus and should people start wearing their masks and we can begin to flatten that curve again, then suddenly sentiment changes in a very critical moment. And that's September. And if sentiment begins to change in September, I I don't think you can overestimate the challenge that Biden will have in holding on to what feels to the political class like a sizable lead right now among those two voter groups. There's no way to predict. 
That's I can only live in the moment. I'm only talking about you July twenty third. You have been scarred by you have been scarred just, by Access Hollywood weekend. I totally I totally acknowledge I have too. I remember that weekend so well because I speaking of bosses. Oh, should I do this? I don't know if I should do this. My boss. You should definitely do this. My boss that weekend <laughs> back then absolutely thought that oh, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. <laughs> wow, we're halfway. I'm not gonna. I'm going to do it. There were people in my newsroom, not just my boss, and lots of people in the newsroom that I was in in 2016 who absolutely 100% thought that Donald Trump was going to drop out of the race. I would imagine that that happened in newsrooms all across America. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump's going to drop out of the race. And I just remember, like, we were, you know, we're all working like dogs. We're all tired. It's a weekend, right? It's a weekend. And we're working from home like we're always doing, day and night. And there was this... This is such a small thing. Our listeners are going to be like, why is she even talking about this? But we were so tired. And somebody started to suggest that we all needed to get back into the office because he was going to drop out. And then like the rest of the weekend became consumed with, as a manager, me pushing back on people above saying we need to come back into the office because I was trying to protect my reporters and my editors from having to come to work for something I knew was never going to happen. God. That's my biggest memory of Access Hollywood weekend. You guys are actually making me worry that I'm not being cautious enough. So you have, you have like reset my thinking here. Cause it was like, I, I had the same, the same reaction the night Trump won. It was like, you know, like I have to just be a lot more humble. And I think I've been that to some degree and a lot more cautious about making predictions. So of course, every week on this podcast, we come on and I make grand predictions <laughs> about how. Trump is in deep trouble. There's no stopping you. From We're only reporting now. that he is in deep trouble on July 23rd, 2020. We can't say oh God, what happens. Such a cop out. I mean, you sound like a pollster you, yourself now. It's thank a moment you, in We're protecting. Time. It's yeah, a moment it's a moment in time. In time but it's Shut true. up with your moment in time. Oh, I feel like I'm talking to Steve Shepard. What just happened here? I was just friend of the bubble, Steve Shepard. Oh. I actually was just thinking that too. Oh, my God. We are moving on to my favorite part of the show. Y'all get to tell us something that we don't already know. In fact, you get to tell me something that I don't already know. Bar is high. I think you know that. We're going to start with Alex Rorty. Well, and now for something completely different. (laughs) Uh, Off the beaten path of the 2020 presidential election, something I did not know but fascinated me. There is a ballot initiative in South Dakota this year to legalize, completely legalize marijuana. It would be the first red state in the country to do so. Of course, a, a handful of states have already legalized it. The most conservative of which I think you could say is Michigan has legalized recreational marijuana. And why, why do I find this interesting uh, besides the, the self-evident? To me, the question is whether or not marijuana is going to become yet another issue in this ongoing war of attrition, holy war, cultural war that we have, where Democrats take a side on one thing, Republicans take a side on the other side. And the issue doesn't move, right? I mean, maybe blue states do something and red states take action, but on a national level, it doesn't move as an issue. My question for marijuana and marijuana legalization, which I mean, it wasn't all that long ago, was a huge lightning rod cultural topic in our country, whether it's going to go something like the, the route of gay rights, where there is just broad acceptance in, in the culture, in the country and proof of how America, and it's not just liberals and Democrats, how America as a whole has really moved to the left over the last 30 or 40 years. And, and I don't have the answer. I know advocates for marijuana legalization feel confident it will pass in South Dakota. They say they have polling that shows it. I haven't dug in enough to, to know 100% that they're right. You know, again, I think this is a, in their words, a tipping point year, whether or not this kind of initiative can break through in the red states. 
Dave. New Jersey also has an amendment this year, my home state, for Jersey. for marijuana legalization, <laughs> just to, to plug plug yours, Alex. I have a little nugget from my favorite topic, which is veep stakes. Liberals and progressives are increasingly getting behind a candidate that is not Elizabeth Warren because they fear that Warren is not going to be the pick, but they don't want the pick to be Kamala Harris. So they are increasingly getting behind, drumroll, Karen Bass, a congresswoman from Los Angeles. I'm seeing this increasingly. It's been flagged to me this week that they believe that Warren is probably too polarizing for Biden to pick, but that Bass doesn't want to be president, will be a governing pick, is African-American, is respected by all of her colleagues, is, is frankly respected by Republicans have said good things about her and would leave the 2024 race wide open if Biden is a one-term president, whereas Kamala obviously would begin running for president immediately and look like the favorite to be the next president if Biden only seeks a term. Watch liberals on this. They are increasingly pushing her online, in public, and there's endorsements coming. She's a bit of a dark horse that I am paying much more attention to as we move towards this pick, which is going to happen within the next two, three weeks. Dave, you win. You win the contest today. That's tough to compete Sorry, against. Alex. That was tough to compete against. It's I hard to compete had a against Veep Stakes. I don't know. When I'm involved in the show, all I want to hear is Veep Stakes, too. I, just, so I, I love the Veep Stakes. I love vice presidential picks. I just think they're amazing and ridiculous at the same time. I just love it all. <laughs> I just love it all. So I know you guys don't always do these shout outs to local reporters or any reporters or reporters to follow. I'm going to do one because I've got one on my mind before we wrap this show up and I'm going to break form and I'm not going with a local reporter this time. I'm going with one of our old colleagues uh, from National Journal and then for me at Politico and it's Nancy Cook. I'm going with Nancy Cook right now because Nancy has her finger on the pulse of this economic story in, on Capitol Hill that I think is going to be so important over the course of the coming 12 weeks. And she, she wrote a dynamite story in the last few days about how the economy and the economic pieces of Trump's reelection pie could all come together over the course of August and September. And I think her reporting is something to watch. So everybody, if you're not following Nancy, start following Nancy. I don't think you will regret it. A great reporter and someone who's pretty fun to have a drink with. She is a fun human being. I always really do enjoy Nancy Cook and I kind of miss her right now. You guys want to highlight anybody or am I moving to the close of this thing? I'm moving you're to the close. I can see the face. Look at, look, at, <laughs> look at Alex's eyes. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm right. sure I can think of someone. I'm sure you could. Thank you to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler, and to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. And thank you to our listeners. Please check us out on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or Stitcher or whatever podcast app you're using these days. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That's it for me. Talk to you next week.